As I said in episode 900, my update about dropping this podcast back to one a week for a while for health reasons, I'm going to be sharing brand new episodes only on Mondays for a while. I'm going to use my usual Wednesday and Friday slots to reshare some excellent older episodes. What follows is one of those interviews. And in this moment, they're staring us in the face. Health disparities are staring us in the face. Economic disparities staring us in the face. Physical harm and violence staring us in the face. What are you going to do to make sure that the hell our communities are going through right now disappears, goes away, and doesn't come back? So if the nominee is not showing up with real solutions and really talking pragmatically around how to make those solutions come to life, then they won't get our vote. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. I had the chance to speak with Jamal Watkins, who's vice president of civic engagement at the NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. The NAACP is a storied civil rights organization started back in 1909 to advance justice for African Americans. Jamal is on his second tour at the NAACP and his whole career is in the progressive ecosystem, having worked previously with the labor unions SEIU and the AFL-CIO at City Year and Amnesty International. I want to learn about what Jamal and the NAACP are working on in these crazy days of the run-up to the 2020 election in the middle of Trump, pandemic, recession, and uprising. So, after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Jamal Watkins of the NAACP. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Hey, Jamal. Hey, good afternoon. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Doing well, considering... Not quite sure what well is these days, given the pandemic and now with all of the civil unrest that's happening. It's just it's a, it's a lot. It really is. Uh, well, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me then. Oh, no, definitely happy to chat. And, and the timing is very interesting, given that you know I live here in Washington, D.C., and seeing what's happening literally not too far from my home you know, puts things in perspective in a different way that there's a lot of tension, outrage, angst, you know, just the list goes on and on of sort of the, the the tension points, if you will. For me, and I think for the organization I work for, the NAACP, it's really a a clarifying moment around, therefore, what? What do we want to see after this? You know, what is the next phase, the next step? What's the right outcomes? And 
you know, in this day and age of instantaneous sort of gratification, I know that it's not going to be something that happens instantaneously. And your organization certainly has a long history. Yeah, well, I've spent time having conversations over the past few weeks with folks who they know the NAACP kind of, sort of, but don't know that, you know, after 111 years, we are still 99% volunteer-based, volunteer-driven. And so the professional staff that exists is dwarfed by our 2.4 million plus members, advocates, and activists. And that's usually who you see, you know, on the front lines and in community. And you know, the other thing that doesn't always get lifted up is that we are a policy advocacy organization at our core. And so going back to our founding, we were founded in 1909. It was literally because lynchings were being either sanctioned by certain states or ignored by certain states. And so we were created to end the social practice of lynchings. And when we think about that sort of context of being in an existential moment, we're literally now in another existential moment where how do we right-size the policies, the systems, elected officials who represent us so that aren't needlessly dying, whether it's from COVID-19, because we don't have enough medical supplies and wherewithal to do what's best, or from what I would call extrajudicial killings, where, you know, police and community conflicts are just out of hand. And so definitely in this moment, our organization is in a position to do what I believe is best for the community we serve, but also to really be listening to and focusing in on the volunteers that live in every single community around this country so that we get it right. That makes all kinds of sense. Would you mind just introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Where'd you grow up? How'd you get into this kind of work? And, and what was the path? My name is Jamal Watkins, and I am originally from the great state of California. I was born and raised in a city called Bakersfield, which is in the San Joaquin Valley of California. And in my head, I grew up in a small town, but small town for California is 300,000, 500,000 people, now 800,000 in the metro. Really growing up in Bakersfield, California, you got to see, I think, the best worst of both worlds. And when I say that, I mean in terms of race and class. So growing up in a community that had an oil industry, so the high school I went to, Frank Gifford, is like one of our famous alums. And people joke, oh, that's Kathy Lee's husband. And I'm like, well, he was a famous football player at one point. But growing up in that type of environment where you also have a huge migrant seasonal farm worker community, my parents were really clear that, you know, issues of race and class matter. My parents also were a part of the union movement in that they worked for um, jobs that were covered by SEIU. So I grew up in this household of... SEIU meets NAACP meets social justice and didn't know at the time as a kid that I was being socialized to have a lens around economic and racial equity, if you will. But fast forward to that, you know, living in California, growing up in California, you got to see everything from, you know, the issues around Rodney King to what was happening to migrant seasonal farm workers to the economic, you know, disruptions that happened, whether it was a dot-com boom, et cetera. And I had the privilege of going to Stanford University for undergrad and really got a chance to open my eyes to the fact that this sort of work could be a career. And from there, I've just 
dedicated to doing work, whether it was, you know, my time spent at Amnesty International as the head of campaigns or working in the labor movement. I actually had the privilege of working for SEIU um, and other unions, AFL-CIO, the sort of landscape of being connected to the fact that I could make a, a living, if you will, or at least feed myself and sustain my family and do good has been a sort of the trajectory. And then I would sort of say, as a wraparound, being a part of the NAACP since the age of eight years old on the volunteer side and now being on the professional staff side has really shown me that the work we're doing and the work that we have to continue to do is not sort of a one-off and actually has a shelf life that's long-term. And even today in 2020, with what we see happening in our communities says that we haven't quite gotten it right. We haven't turned a corner yet that fully has said racial justice, equity, getting rid of disparities, fixing the economy so that it works for everyone and not just for the wealthy few. All of those things that we hold high, I think, in terms of our democracy, that we're still working to achieve those things. How would you fit the NAACP into the sort of progressive ecosystem, the progressive movement these days? Being 111 years old, we've had our our ebbs and flows, and it's uneven. And there are times where the organization struggled and had to find its identity. And there are even local communities where the organization may not be as strong as we want. But in this moment, under our current leadership, our president and CEO, Derek Johnson, comes out of the great state of Mississippi, and he still lives in Jackson, Mississippi. And a part of his orientation was that We have to make sure that it's community first, grassroots first, local leaders first. And what that's allowed for us to become and to pivot to as an entity is we really are, I think, in many ways, focusing back into our roots, which is policy advocacy that is hyper-local and dedicated and committed to doing the work of core communities. You know, we're really in a bit of a crisis moment right now. What do you hear like, what is the conversation? What is What actions are being taken? What's the dialogue within the NAACP? The dialogue right now in the immediate, I think, is twofold. Our broader mission is, of course, policy advocacy, civic engagement. So think census, voter turnout, elections, all of the primary work that's happening. And so we have been on that trajectory. Then COVID-19 hits. And it ended up turning uh, our world sort of upside down. And you start to see the health disparities that end up playing out in a very racialized way. And so Black folks in communities having a higher death rate than others, you know, testing supplies and access not being equitable. And so we end up getting plunged into a sort of responsive space where it's the economy, it's health care, and it's democracy. So think the elections in Wisconsin, the primaries. So we've, we've ended up having to really retrofit our work to make sure we're responding to that moment. And then on top of that, you start to see these, what I would consider to be egregious, you know, life and death situations, Ahmaud Aubrey, you know, Mr. Floyd in Minnesota. And so now we're in this criminal justice, gun control, gun debate environment, law enforcement versus community space that we've been in before. But when you add all of it up, I think it's compounded by the fact that it's 2020. You have Donald Trump in the White House, who is not actually a unifying leader and is not crystal clear on how to heal our country and get us back on track. And so all of this seems to be the perfect storm that says 
we're needed now more than ever to do and to double down on policy advocacy that gets rid of disparities, that heals community versus police tensions, and that actually puts us on a course for a, a new America, if you will, because we knew coming out of, or at least we know coming out of COVID-19, that life is not going to be the same and that the world is going to be forever changed. But what is that going to look like for this country and for us as various communities across this country who were already struggling with our identity and where do we go from here? So you are uh, the vice president for civic engagement. Is that right? What does that mean? What's your job? The body of work that I have the privilege of leading on, or or I would even say co-leading because we have so many volunteer leaders who are amazing in their own right, is primarily focusing in on engaging the Black electorate in terms of turnout, engaging the Black electorate in terms of voter registration, focusing in on all things voter protection. So think voting rights, voting rights advocacy, and really connecting the dots around what I would call democracy inclusion. And so thinking about the census and how the census pivots to redistricting and redistricting is connected to reapportionment and representation. So the body of work I have ends up being cross-cutting in many ways and that when we're advocating for education reform or education equity, usually education is run by, you know, decision makers who are either elected or appointed and it's governed by policies that are either administratively or done through a system of laws, and so voting. And so when I add up the scope of work that me and my team really are privileged to lean in on, we have our own unique track that's election-centered. And so think using the voter files and you know data from either Catalyst or Target Smart, and really going into the theory of the case around what do turnout models mean and look like, to even connecting the dots from a policy advocacy frame of what does stimulus number four or the HEROES Act mean for our communities and who are the senators we need to pressure in order to pass an inclusive package that will benefit not only the general community, but communities of color specifically. So, you know, that's in a nutshell, I think, the scope of my work and the tone and tenor of what it looks like. That sounds like an awful lot. Tell me a little more in specific, like when you're talking about turnout or voting or voter protection, what concretely are you guys doing? In terms of turnout, one of the things that we are doing and focusing in on specifically is a thing called relational organizing. And for some people, it's this notion of back to the future. It's connecting community members with community members, having direct conversations with their neighbors and family members. And so what we tested over the last couple of years was an innovation that we took the voter file, which I know I sound very wonky, if you will, but we took data on how many Black voters vote a lot or high propensity Black voters in a certain community under a certain election context and then said, what about their neighbors? And so what we were able to do in certain races, and we tested this in 2019 heavily, is we shared with Black voters who voted a lot, high propensity Black voters, their 10 neighbors. We gave them email address, phone number, actual physical address, and gave them scripts ability to text them through a platform like Hustle and said, you vote a lot. We want you to reach out to your neighbors who don't vote as often and encourage them to vote just as much as you do in this election. And so we started to do very innovative projects like the relational organizing work I just described. We also run traditional GOTV programs, whether it's, you know, three flights of mail that goes to a targeted household, you know, um, text message. 
emails, all of the things that give you a a 10-touch program, if you will. And then I think the biggest thing that we've been leaning in on as an organization is how to really have the right message and messengers to motivate participation in everything from the census to elections. And so doing research around message testing that's both national in scope, but also regional in terms of looking at certain states, pick on, say, a Georgia, a Florida, or a Michigan, so that we have the right messages that motivate folks to participate, because we know that the majority of this country, given what we see now with all of the existential threats of COVID-19 are feeling hurt because of the killings that we're seeing or the murders that we're seeing, you know, folks may not be thinking about the census or elections as the thing to do. And so um, that's been the scope of our work thus far and how we're pivoting. Does the COVID virus, coronavirus, does that radically change how these programs will have to be implemented through the rest of the year if we can't do things like traditional door-to-door GOTV, et cetera? What coronavirus has really pushed us to is to think, how do we actually run program where our primary value add or our value proposition was a ground game? Having people who were literally you know, able to knock on doors host community events, be in the community. And so now that we're in this sort of virtual digital reality and a sort of no-touch CDC compliant reality, we've had to think creatively around how to leverage and optimize our virtual platforms, which we have, hosting virtual summits here and there and everywhere and engaging you know, folks that we haven't engaged before through a digital medium, but also thinking about what does the direct contact look like on the ground? And I'll give you a quick example. We have folks who are in, say, you know, the city of Boston or the city of Atlanta who are working with the school districts. Many of the school districts are still distributing school breakfasts and lunches to parents and families. And so we said, why not figure out how to put a sticker, a very simple, a sticker on the lunches and the breakfasts that say, check your voter registration, complete the 2020 census. Things like that. Or how do we actually get our volunteers who are itching to do something to put on gloves and masks and to maybe do targeted lit drops in communities that have low voter participation numbers or communities that have had a low voluntary response rate to the census? And so if you imagine, if you will, you open your door to go for a walk or to go to the grocery store, even though you're trying to be socially distant, but you have a piece of literature there that otherwise we wouldn't be able to afford to mail to everyone because of the direct mail costs would be too high. So we really are now in this moment where we're pivoting to being creative around how to reach our targets and reach community folks, but in a coronavirus reality. And the recent uprisings have thrown us a huge curveball, but it doesn't mean that we're not resolved to continue to do that work and address the issue of the day. It's probably too early to tell, but how do you think this, uh, you called it an uprising, how do you think that plays out politically? as we go further into the fall? I was just reading a a piece that, I know Michael Podhorzer, who does like his weekend readings, when I think about the ebbs and flows of of uprisings and conflict in a racial context, I'm almost reminded of, I wasn't born then, but the days of, you know, when Nixon was running for office and you had the uprisings and riots that were taking place. And in some ways, what I'm worried about is that, you know, America will look at, you know, the death of Mr. Floyd and say, this is tragic, it shouldn't have happened, but then easily be pivoted to, oh my gosh, folks are looting and burning down our communities when that in and of itself really needs to be unpacked. Because when you see the 
folks taking lamps from Target who are not Black or who are spray painting walls who are not Black, but using Black Lives Matter. It's it's a very, you know, strange sort of reality. But all of that happening pivots back to a, we, we need law and order. We need to restore order. And then that pivots back to, I think, a leadership frame that actually has caused the problem in the first place. And so you end up feeding into an electoral reality that actually hands, in some cases, an election back to the folks that caused the problem in the first place. That's what I worry about. And so how do we break through that and say, you know, we wouldn't be here if there was the right provisions in place, the right policies in place, and the right practices in place in the first place. And so that's going to be a challenge, I think, not only for the Black community, but for the broader community, because in many ways, if we go back to business as usual, we'll be here again and again for years to come. I have that same worry, although it's pretty unclear how it'll play off, because you you definitely have a president who has, you know, from before he was running, has focused on scaring people around issues of race and otherness. This is his forte. He lives for this. Mm -hmm. And what we saw from um, Donald Trump, he uses sort of a, a dual rhetoric in this moment of saying, you know, George Floyd should not have been killed and it's tragic, but thugs are in the streets and we have to go back to law and order. And so he's he ends up doing, I think, to what many would, would say is, you know, he's fanning the racial flames and the racial divisions and at the same time trying to placate or, or at least pander to a certain audience of Black folks to say, but I also see your pain, just a little bit. Because he knows at the end of the day, elections are about, you know, the margins in this moment. So if you can get enough Black men and Black women to either not vote for your opponent or to at least stay home and think, oh, well, well Donald Trump's not so bad, then he possibly has a path to victory. But fundamentally, the situations we're in is because we don't have a leader in chief, if you will, who understands that you have to put your racial biases aside. You also have to put your wealth aside and make sure that you're serving all Americans and all communities and all residents in this country equally. And that has not been the state of play for this current administration and the man who sits in the White House. I mean, there's definitely a side of Trump that's calculating, can he pull a certain percentage of minority vote? Maybe that partially motivated the signing of the First Step Act. How do you think that plays in the context of all the other things going on from this administration? The administration, and and not that I'm trying to you know, psychoanalyze Donald Trump directly, but it's clear the administration's game and their play is to create a divide among race and ethnic populations in this country, period. And that has not changed, and it has not actually softened much, even with COVID-19, even with the election starting to pick up now that there's a presumptive nominee on the Democrat side. And so we're seeing, you know, the ad, for example, that ran during the Super Bowl targeting Black and, you know, some of the narratives around if you want to be wealthy and a high net worth individual, then Trump is the way to go, or even the what we consider to be the illegal practices of giving away money to go to Trump-style rallies in states like Ohio, we've seen this dance and it ends up being a very stereotypical and disappointing dance of, you know, let's try to fool as many Black folks as possible 
so that, you know, we peel off enough to win or stay in power. But at the same time, let's keep the white working class and the larger white community almost at odds with or afraid of communities of color and immigrant communities, which is both, I think, arbitrary, superficial and dangerous to the fabric of our country. So how do you think the NAACP is doing in this time? Is it healthy? Is it doing impactful work? How do you evaluate it? I talked a little bit about the ebbs and flows of the organization. We are in a very strong place, and that's because our base, our members, our volunteers and activists have really pivoted in this moment. And and when I say in this moment, I'm really talking about since 2016. 2016 was a wake-up call for the Black community because in many ways the election was a a bellwether for what was to come. You saw a drop-off of Black turnout, which was the largest over the last 20 years, um, seven percentage points, which is huge. And it also meant that you're ushering in a new administration that is completely the opposite of the Obama era, if you will, leadership. And where we are today is there's a, a clear resolve that race still matters, class still matters, and closing the gaps actually still matters. And when you see some of the practices or actions that were taking place, like the murder of Ahmaud Arbery in Georgia, it harkens to the days of old. And when I say the days of old, I'm talking, you know, the 1940s, 50s, heck, you could even go back to the 1920s, where it was seen as okay for community violence to play out in a racialized way, but it's not okay. And when you have a president-elect, if you will, who is making commentary in some ways, dog whistling, and in other ways, just being blatantly racist, it has demonstrated, I think, for our organization, we're needed now more than ever. So it's galvanized the leaders that we have that are hyper-local. So the Leslie Redmonds who are in Indianapolis, who's a millennial volunteer president, or a Koshua Lee, who's, again, a millennial volunteer president here in D.C., who have said enough is enough, and I'm willing to give my volunteer time and my weekend hours and my nights to make sure that our country gets better and that we come out of what I consider to be a a hole, if you will. How does NAACP exist alongside other Black-led organizations, Color of Change, Black Lives Matter, all these, these groups that don't have the long history and pedigree, but have maybe different ways of organizing and, and maybe somewhat different constituencies? There is an ecosystem, and it's just like in any other community. The Black community is not a monolith. So when you think about race, class, ethnicity, country of origin even, you have a range of populations that fall under the, the, the Black diaspora, if you will. And what we're learning in real time is that there is always a reason, and I would say a season for certain types of organizations, approaches, strategies, etc., So we embrace color of change and the work that Rashad Robinson and Arisha Hatch are doing. We embrace Black Pack and the work that Adrian Sharpshire is doing. We embrace the movement for Black lives. You know, folks like Lumumba and and Montega Simmons and others who are doing critical work because at the end of the day, it's not enough of us actually and not enough infrastructure and capacity because we're still fighting some of the same fights. Maybe in a different context, maybe with a different, you know, scenario, but we're still fighting racism. We're still fighting disparities. And so as an organization that's older, if you will, has a larger footprint, 
we have a responsibility to embrace those that may come at it in a slightly different way or may speak to a different demographic that we do not reach or cannot reach, or in some cases should not be the lead on, because what it does is it gets us in the right direction of alignment. And that alignment is about making sure that we're closing gaps and ending all racial disparities and ultimately dismantling, you know, I think what would be a racist ideology that is driving a lot of the decisions in this country that are irrational and harmful to the fabric of our our society. It seems pretty clear that Joe Biden wouldn't be the presumptive nominee of the Democratic Party if it weren't for the African-American vote in South Carolina and elsewhere. But there also seems to be a bit of a complicated relationship with him about some of the positions he's taken in the past. Where do you think that stands right now? And what are you looking for from Biden as we go forward? First and foremost, our organization is nonpartisan and we don't do endorsements. So when we think about, you know, candidates, if you will, um, whether it's the incumbent, you know, Donald Trump, or it's the presumptive nominee, former Vice President Biden, what we're looking at is where is your policy platform today? How do you view the world in the, in the context of what's needed in order to make sure that our democracy is inclusive, that our economy works for the majority, that we're taking care of issues around education, healthcare, the environment, you know, the, the laundry list. And what we really care about is how the policy platform and strategy aligns with our core values and mission. And so that's what we're looking for from both, you know, the former vice president and the incumbent. And and that has to be the litmus test. And it can't be that our votes are taken for granted or our votes are guaranteed. 2016 is a prime example of when the enthusiasm gap, if you will, and the, the turnout sort of crisis in the Black community hit a very low, demonstrated that just because we exist doesn't mean we're going to always vote for the progressive candidate because the candidate has to give us something that offers not only hope, but a pragmatic solution to the problems that we can name and touch. And in this moment, they're staring us in the face. Health disparities are staring us in the face. Economic disparities staring us in the face. Physical harm and violence staring us in the face. So if the nominee is not showing up with real solutions and really talking pragmatically around how to make those solutions come to life, then they won't get our vote. They won't get the enthusiasm and the turnout necessary to win. And so I think that's going to be the state of play between now and November on both sides of the aisle is really holding the campaigns, both campaigns, feet to the fire around what are you going to do to make sure that the hell our communities are going through right now disappears, goes away, and doesn't come back? What is most exciting to you about what's going on at the NAACP today? What program or action or development is getting you most energized? Well, I'm a bit of a nerd on this one. I am loving that we are leaning heavily into a more metrically driven and data-driven environment. So one of the projects that we are hosting is we host the Data Analytics Hub, which I think I had mentioned a little earlier, but the hub itself is rooted in this notion of GIS mapping, for example. So we're mapping tabular data. And to most people, they're like, what the heck is GIS mapping? What's tabular data? When you think about COVID-19, 
when when they say, oh, we're mapping the hotspots and we can see in this community, here's where the rates are growing or decreasing. We're actually doing that with data relevant to our policy advocacy agenda and also data relative to our turnout models, our voter registration models. And it's not to say we did not have a, a metrically driven program before, but it's gotten ramped up and more sophisticated over the last few years because we know that in a limited resource environment, you have to play both strategically and hyper-locally in order to make sure that you're optimizing those dollars. So I'm excited about the data analytics approach. And the other piece of it is that it ends up being ecumenical. So the data hub we're hosting is funded by the Kellogg Foundation in part, but it services other partner organizations like the National Congress of American Indians or the you know, um, API organization, the Health Forum, Urban League, Unidos US. So we're partnering with the Latinx community. And so for me, that's exciting because it allows for us to really micro-target and figure out where can our policy advocacy and our theory of change or our theory of the case actually make the biggest difference. And, and that allows for us to double down in a way like we've never been able to do before. What do you think is your biggest challenge right now? I believe our biggest challenge, not as an organization, but as a country, is being able to talk about race and class without it becoming something that is polarizing instantly. And there are folks who I think are wed to this notion that if you say Black Lives Matter or Latino women deserve equal pay or Asian folks are not the model minority and their communities represent 70 different cultures, countries, languages, et cetera, that somehow you are you are speaking a divisive language, when in fact, those are things that are real. And if we don't sort of eat the frog and stare them in the face and figure out as a country, how do we move forward, then we're never going to progress. So I do think it's the notion of race being this thing that's untouchable, just like for some class is a thing that's untouchable, that ends up being our biggest problem. And one day we'll be comfortable knowing that it's okay to be white, it's okay to be black, it's okay to be Latino, and live and exist in the same society and unpack how you experience the world differently and ways in order to right-size those experiences so that you're not experiencing those the world differently. And I'm saying this not as a, a blue sky sort of notion. If you think about our gender equity issues in this country and sexism, we're still dealing with that. The whole Me Too movement and Time Is Up movement is showing that for many women, they, you know, who actually cross all race and ethnic groups, are still struggling with finding a voice and a platform. And so I believe that that for us is fundamentally an issue when it comes to being able to talk about race in a real meaningful way and in a critical way without it actually dividing folks instantly and having folks retreat to their corners for some type of epic battle when in fact it's about, you know, uplifting all of us. Who do you think sets a really good example about how to talk about race? Who do you read or listen to that you think is doing a good job on that front? I like to, you know, follow a few journalists, but like Ta Nishi Coates, who is a, an excellent writer, I think has an amazing platform and has really captured sort of the the state of what it means to be black in this country and what that looks like. You also have, you know, some of our more traditional leaders, and I'm call them traditional, and I think of the Obamas, um, both Barack and Michelle, the Oprah Winfrey's of the world, who I think are literally forging a narrative that says you can be educated, successful, and still understand what it means to come from a community that isn't quite equal with everyone else and hasn't achieved equity. So listening to those leaders. And then I would argue 
really, you know, going to the elders of our community and our families. And so, and it sounds a little corny, but I still listen to my grandmother. And I still listen to my aunts and uncles and older cousins who have lived and experienced life a lot longer than me, but can say what you're experiencing now in Georgia or in Minnesota actually happened 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago. Here's how we got out of it. Here's how we maneuvered. And those lessons are being learned. And then I would say as a wraparound, it's really just making sure that we're also, at least for me, listening to a younger generation of thought leaders, progressive advocates and activists. So like the Insane Thoughts of the World, who runs the New Georgia Project, or Dewana Thompson, who runs um, an organization called Woke Vote, who are really building their own lane, but at the same time working with the SNCs of the world, the Cortland Coxes and the Hollis Watkins of the world who reflect an older, seasoned organizing generation, but that also has the wisdom to depart. So I probably gave a very long answer to who I listen to, but it's a, it's a mixture of some journalists, activists, leaders, seniors in my family, seniors in the community, and new young leaders who are really, I think, as an ecosystem teaching me and the rest of us how to get through and out of this moment. It sounds to me like you've found what is a pretty good job for yourself. Is that true? I believe that, and, and this is my own personal mantra, that you know you end up where you're supposed to be, but it doesn't mean that you end up where you're going to be forever. <laughs> and that's not <laughs> way of saying I'm only here for a minute or I'm here for life, but the association is a part of who I am because, as I noted, it's a volunteer organization. So I'm going to be a member before, during, and after employment. And this is my second time working for the association in my adult life. So I've been here and then I left and did a whole lot of other things. And I believe that fundamentally what's unique about the NAACP, because it is volunteer driven, is that many of our former leaders who were volunteer leaders, they go on to do bigger and better things, if you will, in terms of their careers but they're still a part of the association. And so I think of like Congressman Bobby Scott, who is a branch president in Virginia, or Congressman Al Green, who is a branch president, or Rashida Tlaib, who is on the executive committee of her branch. So you can just name a lot of folks who have been a part of and come through the association and are still a part of it, even if it's not their life's work or what they actually rely on to make ends meet. I think there's got to be a lot of, say, college students who look at a career like you have, which ends up at this point, who knows where you're going, in such an important role, wondering how you navigated that. Like when you were at Stanford and you know studying politics and philosophy, what do you think were the good decisions that you made or the good fortune that you encountered along the way? What do you think were some of the key moments that kind of took you where you are right now? For a lot of careers, if you will, there is no roadmap or a sort of magic plan to get you from point A to point B. But what Stanford instilled in me fundamentally as a belief system, which I think I got from my family and my parents, but it reinforced it in a non-familial space, is relationships matter. Everyone that you cross paths with, Every conversation you have matters. And so the work that I've been fortunate to do or blessed to do has been rooted in having great relationships with people 
across a range of sectors and across a range of disciplines. And it wasn't as if I woke up and said, I'm going to do this nonprofit do-gooder thrust of work for the rest of my career. I actually was planning to be a corporate lawyer and at one point thought I was going to work for the oil industry. And I'm far from both of those realities. So it really is about connecting the dots and having meaningful relationships. And when I think of even my Stanford network, you know, knowing and going to school with a Sterling Kelby Brown, who is an actor on This Is Us, but also being a part of an alumni network that includes Senator Cory Booker and the Castro brothers, Julian and Joaquin, that you end up seeing the world in a very different space in that, you know, I went to school with some folks who are now tech millionaires and or, or, or doctors and lawyers, but also actors and politicians. And in many ways, the relationships that connect us all matter. And that for me is what I would argue for any young person, college student, recent graduate, is to value and cherish and develop your network and your relationships, because that pretty much, I think, sets the tone and the tenor for what a career looks like, let alone if you're talking about your personal passion. You picked up a master's at NYU after Stanford. Why did you study what you studied there and how did that help? I thought I wanted to be, at one point, after undergrad, a speechwriter. And so I did, the program was speech and interpersonal communications. And in my head, I was going to be this writer. That didn't quite happen in that way. But what NYU and that experience gave me was really an understanding of how different communities communicate and how different cultures communicate. And the irony of the work that I'm doing now is I see that play out in real time is that, you know, how one views the world is based upon, you know, who they are, where they grew up, what they were socialized to believe and understand. And for a lot of us, it's not a holistic worldview. And so for me, I would say that, you know, even my education choices have influenced who I am today, because if nothing else, it's given me a perspective that I otherwise wouldn't have had, or at least not in this nuanced way. So that was a way in which I've sort of validate my NYU experience, but at the same time, knowing that, again, it wasn't a one plus one equals two reality of, oh, I did this program, now I'm going to be a speechwriter, because it didn't quite materialize that way. Did all that time you spent in the labor movement at SEIU and AFL-CIO, did that provide learnings that are helpful at NAACP? It provided learnings that are helpful in life. Growing up in an SEIU household, because both of my parents are SEIU retirees now, I didn't understand that there was a whole tug of war and a battle, if you will, for how much money people make, what their benefits look like, and what type of life they're going to have or lead in this country. And so what the labor movement has reinforced in me is that there's nothing wrong with wealth and getting rich, living the American dream. But there's something wrong with wealth that's built on the backs of the masses who remain poor. And so finding that balance for me is something that I, I, I take with me and I'll continue to take with me for the rest of my life in that the essential workers right now during coronavirus and COVID-19, think grocery store workers, folks who are in meat packing plants, folks who make sure that our toilet paper actually gets packaged and put on a truck and delivered, the folks who deliver our groceries for those of us who are fortunate to afford Amazon Prime or Instacart, those people 
who are essential workers are underpaid, undervalued, probably don't have the best jobs, the best benefits. But without them, we wouldn't be able to be safe at home or to, or to benefit from the luxuries of being safe at home. And so what the labor movement has taught me is to see the world through that lens and to understand it through that perspective. And then it means that the political choices I make and the decisions I make are going to be colored in a very different way. What advice would you have to people, I would say mostly white people, who want to be good allies in the time like we have right now, but are unclear about which signals to listen to, how to participate in an honest way and in a helpful way? I would say, and I'm, you know, because I'm not white, so I can't put myself in someone else's position. But what I would say that's, and and this is me even thinking about how other communities that are not Black experience the world, is take a moment to see what is happening to other communities. Take a moment to unpack why it's happening, but to then use your own lens of what would you want your life and your family and your experiences to be And how can we collectively make decisions so that that's the same for everyone else? Meaning, you know, I am not a part of the Asian American community, but I do know that I don't want and I would not want someone to say, oh, it's your community that is responsible for COVID-19, which we've seen these horrific racist attacks on the Asian American population. And it's come all the way from the White House. So then I should be making decisions and advocating and standing in the gap to say, A, that's wrong, but B, how do we course correct that so that that community is not being demonized? Because I wouldn't want that happening to my community or to my family. I would argue that that's something that if you are part of the white community in this country, look at it through that lens, but also have those conversations. And they're uncomfortable. I mean, we have jerks in all of our families. We have folks who are narrow-minded in all of our communities. And sometimes we have to call them out. And we have to say, hey, you're a little bit racist. Hey, you're a little bit sexist. Hey, your your view is not helpful. And if we don't actually do that in our own homes, in our own families, in our own communities, then it's not going to happen at scale across the country. So that's probably the best advice I could give. But at the end of the day, it sounds corny, but it's almost like how do you apply your humanity to others, but then think about the system around us that will make it such and make it so. You've been around a little bit. And there's been a a huge amount of societal change through the years before you were paying attention to now. You referenced from the 20s in the last century to now we're in the 20s in this century. What do you think the trajectory has been like on race? Because there's an awful lot of attention to the tension. I think some people argue that we're in a better spot than we were. And some people think we've, you know, gone backwards quite a bit of late. What do you think we are on trajectory? I wouldn't want to do the oppression Olympics, but I I would arguably say that my experience is probably a lot better than my great-grandparents or my grandparents who grew up in a time where they were facing physical harm on a daily basis and in a more direct way. And even the conversation that you and I are having now would have been dangerous in in a heightened sort of sense. So I would argue big picture wise, yes, we have progressed as a nation and globally we progress, but we are not there yet, meaning we have not arrived. And I also think there's a racial angst in this country that is being stoked because 
as we, we, we heard in 2010, the majority of new births were children of color. And that by 2040 something, 44, 2050, the majority of the population is going to be minority or people of color. I'm sure that scares the heck out of folks who are thinking, what does that mean for my community, my family, who I am? And even for, for Black folks, I, from, from California, and the, the minority population in Los Angeles is actually the African-American community. Asian-Americans have a larger population in L.A. than Black folks. That wasn't always the case. So even demographic shifts, even for people of color, sort of have people questioning, what does that mean for us politically and economically? Do we get cut out? I would argue we're now in this moment that requires us to be brave and bold in a new context, meaning we're not facing the, the Jim Crow era, but we're facing the remnants of that. We're not facing, you know, a crisis of lynching, but we, we see police community killings that shouldn't be. And if we don't, you know, address it head on, it, it will only continue to spiral out of control and get worse. And that for me is, it's a complex answer, but I do think we're better in some ways holistically, but we are still spiraling because we haven't figured out how to get past some of the hateful rhetoric that doesn't help any of us. And unfortunately, when you elect someone who sits in the highest seat of leadership in this country who doesn't get it and who still plays into that game of race and division, it's harder for us to, to move forward. And it actually slows us down. Undoubtedly. I recently uh, talked on the show to Steve Phillips, who uh, wrote Brown is the New White and, and talks a lot about race and politics. And he argues that we are in an era of a progressive majority, a new American majority based on a combination of progressive whites and, and people of color. I'm sure you're familiar with that argument. What do you think of that? Do you think we are? Do you think we fall short of it? How close are we to having the opinions in the and the position in the public mind to run this country in a progressive way? You know, I would say, and I, and I love C. Phillips. He's also another Stanford alum. So the whole relationship networking thing I talked about still matters. But I agree fundamentally with his analysis that the majority of Americans are on a progressive trajectory and do see the world and the lens of the world through a light that isn't as regressive, but it's fragile, meaning our attention span, our reliance on a soundbite, you know, instant gratification means that for those that are in the margins, meaning it's not the overwhelming majority, otherwise we'd, we'd be living in a different reality, can be easily swayed or not swayed or distracted or apathetic. And so while there may be a majority of folks in this country who see that we got to get past race and class and gender issues and really form a more perfect union, a lot of those folks are also dealing with insecurities and issues that are fragile and something like a COVID-19 or something like a police community killing situation can divide us instantly. And so it requires leadership and it requires, I think, a, a, a national focus that pushes us to hold true to uh, the progressive leanings that we're in. And that's not to say, you know, I believe that the, the country is going to hell in a handbasket, but it's to say that while there may be the majority of people who see that race, class, gender differences need to go away, if you will, or at least be embraced and celebrated, that's a fragile coalition. 
because we're holding on to that coalition based upon leaders who, in my opinion, aren't always the best. And for this current leadership cycle, at least when we talk about the White House, it's clearly. What do you think is the biggest misconception that people have about the NAACP? Ah, I'll give you three. The first one is that we are some large cohort of folks who all get paid to do the work. And that that narrative that we are a volunteer-led, driven organization and have been that since our inception is completely lost on a lot of folks. They'll say, well, the NAACP in my community doesn't, you know, they're not as loud as they used to be. They're not as bold as they used to be. And we have to remind folks it's volunteers in your community. So you're actually talking about either yourself or your neighbors. And so really, I think that's a big misconception that we have to deal with on a regular basis. It's fundamental. The second misconception that I think we struggle with is the notion that we only care about Black people. Like fundamentally, we are rooted in a Black reality, but the work that we end up doing and the advocacy work is ecumenical. And since it's Sunday, I'll say ecumenical. It very, sounds very spiritual, but if we're advocating for, you know, increased pay in terms of livable wage, or if we're advocating for getting rid of health disparities that affect women and women of color, that's not just for Black folks. That benefits all communities. And when we think about the civil rights movement in a formal setting and the policies that were passed, it benefited across a spectrum of people, including white women. So I think that second bucket of just who we care about gets lost in a narrative that, oh, it's black and white, when actually it's more complex than that. And it's really around equity and an equity frame. And then the third piece that I think we still struggle with is, you know, and you brought this up a little bit, but like the upstarts, the new organizations, like are, is it us versus them? When we're, we can be 111 years old and partner with an organization that's 50 years old or 15 minutes old. That doesn't matter to us. It really matters around how do we get to a, a change reality and a transformative state, if you will, that that looks a lot better than where, what we currently are experiencing. And that's hard for folks to grasp is that we're not in competition with anyone, but we are fighting against, you know, racism and extrajudicial killings and poverty and all. I can go through that list. That's our enemy. But we end up sometimes getting pit against each other like, oh, well, is the NAACP or is it the Urban League? And actually, it's both and. There's a divide, a generational divide that we're seeing politically among progressives that I think is in the white community, it's in the black community, it's in other communities. I'm wondering how you see that difference between sort of young African-Americans and more mature or older ones. The divide is probably more about age than it is around the, this current point in our, our country's history. So, you know, my parents who grew up in the 60s and 70s were part of the Black Power movement and were enticed by the Black Panther movement. Very radical. And in some cases, probably just as much, if not seen as more radical than the Black Lives Matter or the Movement for Black Lives movements. And so while they were that then, they've aged and matured and have settled into a different framework. And so in my head, it's sort of this this question of, says this all the time, is that in movements, you see young people who want to be out front in the streets, protesting, tear the system down. You get a little older and you sort of move inside the building and you, you're having conversations, you're trying to negotiate 
you're trying to figure out, you know, a way to sort of ease the transition. And then for others, you may get a little older and you're inside the boardroom or you're a part of the establishment and you're trying to work it from the inside. But the reality is you need all three. You need all three sort of spaces to be occupied in order to reach the right, I think, place of of being overall. I know it sounds very like theoretical and it may not be concrete, but it's the notion that I think younger people by default sometimes tend to be and can be more radical. And the older you get, you may get tied down by life and other responsibilities that changes your worldview. But it doesn't mean you don't have the same passion, the same vision and the same desires for equity as that same group is just how you get there may be different. That answer makes a lot of sense to me. I'm wondering if there's a question which I haven't asked that you would like to be asked. And it's not a question that you haven't asked per se that I would like to be asked, but it's a question I'm asking myself is how do we sustain who we are as people, our mental health, our humanity, and still do this dance around fighting for things that we know need to get changed or or be improved? And that's a question I ask myself every day because it would be easy to sort of say, you know what, all this racial justice stuff, all this work, all this fighting, I'm just going to go and live my life and make money and be in a corporate reality and sort of ignore it. But you can't ignore it. And so there's always this pragmatic sort of question I ask is like, how? How do we get past this? How do we get out of this moment? And of course, there's a lot of different answers and a lot of different paths. But for me, it's the one question that I'm going to continue to ask myself and even ask others because the answers that get generated from that question are the answers that are going to hopefully save this country from turmoil and conflict and peril that we're seeing currently in our streets. What would be your rough draft of an answer? Ah, I have an NAACP answer and then I have a personal answer. The NAACP answer is participate like never before in the political system. That means do the census. That means vote. That means making sure you're holding elected officials responsible and accountable. So, And I believe in that answer, that there is a fundamental, you got to participate and hold folks accountable and really work the system that we have been given But then there's a personal answer that I I still struggle with reconciling, which is maybe the system is inherently flawed. Maybe the system needs to be cracked open a little bit more and we need to have a new normal. And COVID-19, ironically enough, gives us a bit of an excuse to say, let's rethink the norms. Like there are folks who are working from home who their companies and organizations said, you could never work from home. It wouldn't work for us. And it's working for a lot of folks just fine. I mean, there's some kinks in the road. So if we can have a new normal around a sort of corporate culture and work culture, why not have a new normal around how governance takes place, how we actually organize our societies, hell, tax policies around education? Like, so I struggle with the inside baseball versus outside baseball approach. And so that's why I give two answers. One is you got to work the system we have. But then my other answer is let's think about how we transform the system so that it actually works better for what we need. Makes sense. People are putting an awful lot of weight on this vice presidential choice for former Vice President Biden. Do you have a personal preference? It's a tough question because I want someone who is going to bring back you know, the notion of vigor and a, a, a real discipline around addressing the issues that are happening 
today and beyond. And that's not to say that um, v- former Vice President Biden doesn't bring that, but he's going to need a counterpart that is just as amazing, if not more amazing than he is in these spaces and in these moments. I would also say I am not wed to this notion that, you know, race and gender are the litmus test because you got to have the policy chops. You have to have the vision. You have to be able to capture the heart of people in order to really fill that role. And so it has to be in many ways a person that reflects what we need now and also what we need long term over the next four years after the November election takes place. So for me, I'm considering all you know, sort of options, but I'm, I'm one individual. As an organization, I would say that our rhetoric and our rubric is, is the same, that we need to make sure that there's a candidate that actually can carry the needs of the day and beyond. And at the same time, we have to hold the campaign accountable to the fact that this can't be someone who is put in place to placate or to do business as usual, because then we end up where we are now, four or five years from now. And so I, th- I think that's probably the best answer I could give at this moment without naming names or, you know, picking a, a, a potential this person versus that person. Jamal, it's been really an honor to talk to you today. Uh, is there anything else you want to say? Well, I want to say thank you. <laughs> I know your history and the work that you've done. And it's funny because we use your system that you helped co-found. And I think as we go through this current moment in history, how do we as a collective community make sure that we fall on the right side of history? And again, I, I feel like I say a lot of corny things because that's the work I do sometimes that you're living in this, how do you get to the blue sky reality? But it, it's true. If we don't figure out how to course correct and right size what's happening in this country, what does our legacy mean and look like? How will we re- be remembered and what do we set up for our children and our children's children? And so for me, all of this work would mean nothing if we don't get that right, because that's really what it's about and what it's for is to build a more perfect union, to be an inclusive society, one that isn't fractured by race or class or gender, sexual orientation, all of the divisions that actually don't fundamentally matter when when it comes down to what it means to be a productive and healthy member of our society. So that's really, I think, where I am personally. That's where I know my organization is. And that's hopefully where this country is headed. That's a great note, I think, on which to end. That was Jamal Watkins. He's at NAACP.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at resistancedashboard.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.